Part Seven of the Perfect Wagnerite. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Neufeld. The Perfect Wagnerite: A Commentary on the Nibelung's Ring, by George Bernard Shaw. Part Seven. Forgotten ere finished. In all this, it will be observed, there is nothing new. The musical fabric is enormously elaborate and gorgeous, but you cannot say, as you must in witnessing the Rheingold, the Valkyries, and the first two acts of Siegfried, that you have never seen anything like it before, and that the inspiration is entirely original. Not only the action, but most of the poetry might conceivably belong to an Elizabethan drama. The situation of Cleopatra and Antony is unconsciously reproduced without being bettered, or even equalled in point of majesty in musical expression. The loss of all simplicity and dignity, the impossibility of any credible scenic presentation of the incidents, and the extreme staginess of the conventions by which these impossibilities are got over, are no doubt covered from the popular eye by the overwhelming prestige of de Gutterdemmerung as part of so great a work as the ring, and by the extraordinary storm of emotion and excitement which the music keeps up. But the very qualities that intoxicate the novice in music enlighten the adept. In spite of the fullness of the composer's technical accomplishment, the finished style and effortless mastery of harmony and instrumentation displayed, there is not a bar in the work which moves us as the same themes moved us in the Valkyries nor is anything but external splendor added to the life and humor of Siegfried. In the original poem, Brynhild delays her self-immolation on the pyre of Siegfried to read the assembled choristers a homily on the efficacy of the love panacea. My holiest wisdom's hoard, she says, now I make known to the world. I believe not in property, nor money, nor godliness, nor hearth and high place, nor pomp and peerage, nor contract and custom, but in love. Let that only prevail, and ye shall be blessed in weal or woe. Here the repudiations still smack of Bakunin, but the Saviour is no longer the volition of the full-grown spirit of man, the free-willer of necessity, sword in hand, but simply love, and not even Shelleyan love, but vehement sexual passion. It is highly significant of the extent to which this uxorious commonplace lost its hold of Wagner, after disturbing his conscience, as he confesses to Ruckel for years, that it disappears in the full score of Night Falls on the Gods, which was not completed until he was on the verge of producing Parsifal, twenty years after the publication of the poem. He cut the homily out and composed the music of the final scene with a flagrant recklessness of the old intention. The rigorous logic with which representative musical themes are employed in the earlier dramas is here abandoned without scruple, and for the main theme at the conclusion he selects a rapturous passage sung by Sieglinde in the third act of the Valkyries, when Brunhild inspires her with a sense of her high destiny as the mother of the unborn hero. There is no dramatic logic whatever in the recurrence of this theme to express the transport in which Brunhild immolates herself. There is, of course, an excuse for it. 
inasmuch as both women have an impulse of self-sacrifice for the sake of Siegfried. But this is really hardly more than an excuse, since the Valhalla theme might be attached to Alberich, on the no worse ground that both he and Wotan are inspired by ambition, and that the ambition has the same object, the possession of the ring. The common sense of the matter is that the only themes which had fully retained their significance in Wagner's memory at the period of the composition of Night Falls on the Gods are those which are mere labels of external features, such as the dragon, the fire, the water, and so on. This particular theme of Zieglinda's is, in truth, of no great musical merit. It might easily be the pet climax of a popular sentimental ballad. In fact, the gushing effect which is its sole valuable quality is so cheaply attained that it is hardly going too far to call it the most trumpery phrase in the entire tetralogy. Yet, since it undoubtedly does gush very emphatically, Wagner chose, for convenience sake, to work up this final scene with it rather than with the more distinguished, elaborate, and beautiful themes connected with the love of Brynhild and Siegfried. He would certainly not have thought this a matter of no consequence had he finished the whole work ten years earlier. It must also be borne in mind that the poem of the Ring was complete and printed in 1853, and represents the sociological ideas which, after germinating in the European atmosphere for many years, had been brought home to Wagner, who was intensely susceptible to such ideas, by the crash of 1849 at Dresden. Now, no man whose mind is alive and active as Wagner's was to the day of his death can keep his political and spiritual opinions, much less his philosophic consciousness, at a standstill for a quarter of a century until he finishes an orchestral score. When Wagner first sketched Night Falls on the Gods, he was thirty-five. When he finished the score for the first Bayreuth festival in 1876, he had turned sixty. No wonder he had lost his old grip of it and left it behind him. He even tampered with the Rhinegold for the sake of theatrical effect when stage-managing it, making Wotan pick up and brandish a sword to give visible point to his sudden inspiration as to the raising up of a hero. The sword had first to be discovered by Fafner among the nibbling treasures, and thrown away by him as useless. There is no sense in this device, and its adoption shows the same recklessness as to the original intention which we find in the music of the last act of the Dusk of the Gods. Why he changed his mind. Wagner, however, was not the man to allow his grip of a great philosophic theme to slacken even in twenty-five years, if the theme still held good as a theory of actual life. If the history of Germany from 1849 to 1876 had been the history of Siegfried and Wotan transposed into the key of actual life, Night Falls on the Gods would have been the logical consummation of Das Rheingold and the Valkyrie instead of the operatic anachronism it actually is. But, as a matter of fact, Siegfried did not succeed, and Bismarck did. Ruckel was a prisoner, whose imprisonment made no difference. Bakunin broke up not Valhall, but the International, which ended in an undignified quarrel between him and Karl Marx. The Siegfrieds of 1848 were hopeless political failures, whereas the Wotans and Alberichs and Lokis 
were conspicuous political successes. Even the Mimas held their own as against Siegfried. With the single exception of Ferdinand Lassalle, there was no revolutionary leader who was not an obvious impossibilist in practical politics, and Lassalle got himself killed in a romantic and quite indefensible duel, after wrecking his health in a titanic oratorical campaign which convinced him that the great majority of the working classes were not ready to join him, and that the minority who were ready did not understand him. The International, founded in 1861 by Karl Marx in London, and mistaken for several years by nervous newspapers for a red spectre, was really only a turnip ghost. It achieved some beginnings of international trade unionism by inducing English workmen to send money to support strikes on the continent, and recalling English workers who had been taken across the North Sea to defeat such strikes, but on its revolutionary socialistic side, it was a romantic figment. The suppression of the Paris Commune, one of the most tragic examples in history of the pitilessness with which capable practical administrators and soldiers are forced by the pressure of facts to destroy romantic amateurs and theatrical dreamers, made an end of melodramatic socialism. It was as easy for Marx to hold up tears as the most execrable of living scoundrels, and to put upon Gadifay the brand that still marks him impossible in French politics, as it was for Victor Hugo to bombard Napoleon III from his paper battery in Jersey. It was also easy to hold up Felix Piatz and Delacluse as men of much loftier ideals than Thiers and Gadifay and the one fact that could not be denied was that when it came to actual shooting it was gaillefay who got delacluse shot and not delacluse who got gaillefay shot and that when it came to administering the affairs of france tears could in one way or another get it done whilst piat could neither do it nor stop talking and allow somebody else to do it True, the penalty of following tears was to be exploited by the landlord and capitalist, but then the penalty of following Piat was to get shot like a mad dog, or at best get sent to New Caledonia, quite unnecessarily and uselessly. To put it in terms of Wagner's allegory, Alberich had got the ring back again, and was marrying into the best Valhall families with it. He had thought better of his old threat to dethrone Wotan and Loki. He had found that Nibelheim was a very gloomy place, and that if he wanted to live handsomely and safely, he must not only allow Wotan and Loki to organize society for him, but pay them very handsomely for doing it. He wanted splendor, military glory, loyalty, enthusiasm, and patriotism, and his greed and gluttony were wholly unable to create them whereas Wotan and Loki carried them all to a triumphant climax in Germany in 1871, when Wagner himself celebrated the event with his Kaiser March, which sounded much more convincing than the Marseillaise or the Camagnole. How, after the Kaiser March, could Wagner go back to his idealization of Siegfried in 1853? How could he believe seriously in Siegfried slaying the dragon and charging through the mountain fire, when the immediate foreground was occupied by the Hôtel de Ville, with Felix Piat endlessly discussing the principles of socialism, whilst the shells of tears were already battering the Arc de Triomphe and ripping up the pavement of the Champs-Élysées? 
it is not clear that things had taken an altogether unexpected turn that although the ring may like the famous communist manifesto of marx and engels be an inspired guest at the historic laws and predestined end of our capitalistic theocratic epoch yet wagner like marx was too inexperienced in technical government and administration and too melodramatic in his hero contravillain conception of the class struggle to foresee the actual process by which his generalization would work out or the part to be played in it by the classes involved let us go back for a moment to the point at which the nibelung legend first becomes irreconcilable with wagner's allegory fafner in the allegory becomes a capitalist but fafner in the legend is a mere hoarder his gold does not bring him any revenue it does not even support him he has to go out and forage for food and drink in fact he is on the way to his drinking pool when siegfried kills him and siegfried himself has no more use for gold than fafner the only difference between them in this respect is that siegfried does not waste his time in watching a barren treasure that is of no use to him whereas fafner sacrifices his humanity and his life merely to prevent anybody else getting it this contrast is true to human nature but it shunts the ring drama off the economic lines of the allegory in real life fafner is not a miser he seeks dividends comfortable life and admission to the circles of wotan and loki his only means of procuring these is to restore the gold to alberich in exchange for scrip in alberich's enterprises thus fortified with capital alberich exploits his fellow dwarfs as before and also exploits fafner's fellow-giants who have no capital what is more the toil forethought and self-control which the exploitation involves and the self-respect and social esteem which its success wins affect an improvement in alberich's own character which neither marx nor wagner appear to have foreseen he discovers that to be a dull greedy narrow-minded money-grubber is not the way to make money on a large scale for though greed may suffice to turn tens into hundreds and even hundreds into thousands to turn thousands into hundreds of thousands requires magnanimity and a will to power rather than to pelf and to turn thousands into millions alberich must make himself an earthly providence for masses of workmen he must create towns and govern markets in the meantime fafner wallowing in dividends which he has done nothing to earn may rot intellectually and morally from mere disuse of his energies and lack of incentive to excel but the more imbecile he becomes the more dependent he is upon alberich and the more the responsibility of keeping the world machine in working order falls upon alberich consequently though alberich in eighteen fifty may have been merely the vulgar manchester factory owner portrayed by engels in eighteen seventy six he was well on the way towards becoming krupp of essen or carnegie of homestead without exaggerating the virtues of these gentlemen it will be conceded by everybody except perhaps those veteran german social democrats who have made a cult of obsolescence under the name of marxism that the modern entrepreneur is not to be displaced and dismissed so lightly as alberich is dismissed in the ring they are really the masters of the whole situation wotan is hardly less dependent on them than fafner 
the ward lord visits their work, acclaims them in stirring speeches, and casts down their enemies, whilst Loki makes commercial treaties for them, and subjects all his diplomacy to their approval. The end cannot come until Siegfried learns Alberich's trade and shoulders Alberich's burden. Not having as yet done so, he is still completely mastered by Alberich. He does not even rebel against him, except when he is too stupid and ignorant, or too romantically impracticable, to see that Alberich's work, like Wotan's work and Loki's work, is necessary work, and that therefore Alberich can never be superseded by a warrior, by only by a capable man of business who is prepared to continue his work without a day's intermission. Even though the proletarians of all lands were to become class-conscious, and obey the call of Marx by uniting to carry the class struggle to a proletarian victory, in which all capital should become common property, and all monarchs, millionaires, landlords, and capitalists become common citizens, the triumphant proletarians would have either to starve in anarchy the next day, or else do the political and industrial work which is now being done, tant bien que mal, by our Romanoffs, our Hohenzollerns, our Krupps, Carnegies, Lavers, Pierpont Morgans, and their political retinues. And in the meantime these magnates must defend their power and property with all their might against the revolutionary forces, until these forces become positive executive administrative forces, instead of, com instead of conspiracies of protesting, moralizing, virtuously indignant amateurs who mistook Marx for a man of affairs and tears for a stage villain. But all this represents a development of which one gathers no forecast from Wagner or Marx. Both of them prophesied the end of our epoch, and so far as one can guess, prophesied it rightly. They also brought its industrial history up to the year 1848 far more penetratingly than the academic historians of their time, but they broke off there, and left a void between 1848 and the end in which we, who have to live in that period, get no guidance from them. The Marxists wandered for years in this void, striving with fanatical superstition to suppress the revisionists, who, facing the fact that the Social Democratic Party was lost, were trying to find the path by the light of contemporary history, instead of vainly consulting the oracle in the pages of Das Kapital. Marx himself was too simple-minded a recluse, and too full of the validity of his remoter generalizations, and the way in which the rapid integration of capital in trusts and cartels was confirming them, to be conscious of the void himself. Wagner, on the other hand, was comparatively a practical man. It is possible to learn more of the world by producing a single opera, or even conducting a single orchestra rehearsal, than by ten years reading in the library of the British Museum. Wagner must have learnt between Das Rheingold and the Kaisermarsch that there are yet several dramas to be interpolated in the ring, after the Valkyries, before the allegory can tell the whole story, and that the rest of these interpolated dramas will be much more like a revised Rienzi than like Siegfried. If anyone doubts the extent to which Wagner's eyes had been opened to the administrative childishness and romantic conceits, of the heroes of the revolutionary generation that served its apprenticeship on the barricades of 1848-49, 
and perished on those of 1870 under Thiers Mietreuse, let him read Eine Capitulation, that scandalous burlesque in which the poet and composer of Siegfried, with the levity of a schoolboy, mocked the French Republicans who were doing in 1871 what he himself was exiled for doing in 1849. He had set the enthusiasm of the Dresden Revolution to his own greatest music, but he set the enthusiasm of twenty years later in derision to the music of Rossini. There is no mistaking the tune he meant to suggest by his doggerel of Republic, Republic, Republiclic. The overture to William Tell is there as plainly as if it were noted down in full score. In the case of such a man as Wagner, you cannot explain this volte-face as more jingoism produced by Germany's overwhelming victory in the Franco-Prussian War, nor as personal spite against the Parisians for the Tannhäuser fiasco. Wagner had more cause for personal spite against his own countrymen than he ever had against the French. No doubt his outburst gratified the pettier feelings which great men have in common with small ones, but he was not a man to indulge in such gratifications, or indeed to feel them as gratifications, if he had not arrived at a profound philosophical contempt for the inadequacy of the men who were trying to wield Notung, and who had done less work for Wagner's own art than a single German king, and he, too, only a mad one. Wagner had by that time done too much himself not to know that the world is ruled by deeds, not by good intentions, and that one efficient sinner is worth ten futile saints and martyrs. I need not elaborate the point further in these pages. Like all men of genius, Wagner had exceptional sincerity, exceptional respect for facts, exceptional freedom from the hypnotic influence of sensational popular movements, exceptional sense of the realities of political power, as distinguished from the presences and idolatries behind which the real masters of modern states pull their wires and train their guns. When he scored Night Falls on the Gods, he had accepted the failure of Siegfried and the triumph of the Wotan Loki Alberich Trinity as a fact. He had given up dreaming of heroes, heroines, and final solutions, and had conceived a new protagonist in Parsifal, whom he announced not as a hero, but as a fool who was armed not with a sword which cut irresistibly, but with a spear which he held only on condition that he did not use it, and who, instead of exulting in the slaughter of a dragon, was frightfully ashamed of having shot a swan. The change in the conception of the Deliverer could hardly be more complete. It reflects the change which took place in Wagner's mind between the composition of the Rheingold and Night Falls on the Gods and it explains why he dropped the ring allegory, and fell back on the status quo ante by Lohengrinizing. If you ask why he did not throw Siegfried into the waste-paper basket, and rewrite the ring from the Valkyries onwards, one must reply that the time had not come for such a feat. Neither Wagner nor anyone else then living knew enough to achieve it. Besides, what he had already done had reached the limit of even his immense energy and perseverance, and so he did the best he could with the unfinished and forever unfinishable work, rounding it off with an opera, much as Rossini rounded off some of his religious compositions with a gallop. Only Rossini on such occasions wrote in his score, Excusez du peu. 
but Wagner left us to find out the change for ourselves, perhaps to test how far we had really followed his meaning. End of Part 7